The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. We keep making the same mistakes again and again. There are a series of political mishaps that keep happening to us. It's best to understand why we do them, not just assume it's the fault of other people or the fault of politicians, but to understand that these are traps that we face now, that our ancestors faced uh, around the world hundreds of years ago, and that our descendants will face too, because it's about what it means to be human and, and to try and make decisions among ourselves. Welcome to the Next Big Idea Daily Podcast with me, your host, Michael Kavnat. Now, like many of you, I'm celebrating American independence this week. Yes, almost 250 years ago, a scrappy band of gentlemen farmers shrugged off the yoke of imperial... Well, you know the story. Or at least you know the legend. It's a great and inspiring one, isn't it? Even if the truth has always been more complicated than most textbooks allow. For example, one of the most cherished myths is that what our founding fathers created was a democracy. While there's no doubt they established an innovative form of government that was arguably a step in the right direction for human freedom, the idea that it was a democracy implies the participation and consent of the entire population, which was never the case. Famously, all women were left out of the process for nearly 150 years, and enslaved peoples and their descendants were systematically denied voting rights until the second half of the 20th century, following a civil war, constitutional amendments, and decades of civil rights activism and legislation. But now we've solved it, right? Now we have a democracy. Well, not so fast. My guest this week is Ben Ansel, a political scientist based at Oxford University, and he's written a new book called Why Politics Fails. In it, he gets into various ways our political systems in the U.S. and Europe fall short when it comes to solving the big problems we face, problems like climate change, terrorism, and income inequality. We'll get into that in the course of the week, but the first problem that Ben calls attention to cuts to the very heart of what we think makes the American experiment so special, a problem he calls the democracy trap. The democracy trap is that there is no such thing as the will of the people. Unless we all agree on everything, and we usually don't, we have to find ways of managing our disagreement. So we can't insist everyone agree. But when we disagree, we find ourselves falling into chaos or polarization. Chaos happens because when we have more than two people and more than two things to vote over, which is practically always, there is no way to guarantee that there is a true collective preference. This is a mathematical rule. It's called Arrow's Impossibility Theorem, and it means we sometimes end up spiraling around without being able to make any final decision. Towards the end of 2011, Belgium managed to take this to a new extreme. For 589 days, the country lacked any elected government at all. Polarization is the opposite problem. In this case, we avoid chaos, but replace it with animosity, sometimes even violence. American politics has become increasingly polarized over the past few decades. We see it when Congress cannot pass bills to raise the debt ceiling, or in polls where voters say they wouldn't want their children marrying a member of the opposite party. 
and we see it in the refusal to accept the outcomes of elections themselves. Ben Ansel, welcome to the Next Big Idea Daily. Thank you for having me here, Michael. So your book is called Why Politics Fails, and we're going to get into all the many ways that it does fail uh, across multiple dimensions that you lay out in excruciating detail. But you're also going to offer us some solutions to you know how things could be better, or is it all going to be why things don't work? So the great thing, um, Michael, about being an academic who writes a book for a broader audience is that your publishers insist when you have diagnosed all the problems in the world that you also think about what might cure those problems. And so the way the book is structured, um, for your listeners, when they, when they, I hope, read the book, um, they'll see each of the big challenges that we talk about, like democracy or security. We talk both about what the trap is, what the problems are, what the diagnosis is, and then there's a section on how we escape that trap. Uh, so I think it's really important not to have your listeners think, I already hated politics, <laughs> now I think it's even worse, there's nothing we can do, uh, because one key message of the book that I hope comes out from today is that politics may fail time and again, but it's it's helpful for us to know why it fails. Uh, and then it's really helpful for us not to think that you can somehow magically replace it through technology or through some kind of strong leader who can push aside politics, but that we take it seriously, that, that we expect that we'll always disagree, but we'll find ways to manage that disagreement. And you use this word trap throughout the book, the democracy trap, the prosperity trap. What do you mean by a trap? Are you just trying to identify kind of structural problems? Yeah, I think, you know, the trap is a nice metaphor here in, in the sense that it, it gets to the nub of the problem, which is that we keep making the same mistakes again and again. There are a series of political mishaps that keep happening to us. It's best to understand why we do them, not just assume it's the fault of other people or the fault of politicians, but to understand that these are traps that we face now, that our ancestors faced uh, around the world hundreds of years ago, and that our descendants will face too, because it's about what it means to be human and, and to try and make decisions among ourselves. In your first topic of the democracy trap, I think the key examples you give us when you talk about chaos, so one of the one part of the democracy trap is chaos. We have too many choices, we have too many choosers, uh, and we can't settle on anything. And and the kind of beautiful example that you talk about at length in the book is Brexit, which became quite a chaotic situation, and I suppose remains one in many ways. Can you maybe say a little bit about how the Brexit dilemma gets at what you're talking about in terms of chaos? Brexit was simple, right? Or it seemed simple. Uh, in 2016, uh, Brits got to vote about whether Britain should remain uh, in the European Union or leave the European Union. And by a slim but still substantial margin, uh, we decided to leave. And then came the challenge, because there's lots of ways that you cannot be in the European Union. I mean, the United yeah. States is not in the European Union at all, right? It, it, so we could go that far out. But we could also have been like the Turks and have a trade deal, or we could be like the Norwegians and allow free migration. And so once we got to that situation of having multiple ways that we could not be in the European Union, and we had lots of different political actors who wanted different things, it became incredibly hard for politicians to take those options and choose among them. And in the yeah. book I talk about when I went to Parliament to advise politicians from both political parties 
about how they might be able to decide what they wanted to do. And we came up with all kinds of electoral systems they could use, all kinds of ways of arraying the votes of the different members of the different parties. But ultimately, nobody could agree on anything at all. Uh, what happened instead is the politicians sort of misrepresented what they want. They tried to vote strategically, and we made no decision for a full six months. We kept putting bills up to Parliament that would collapse. And ultimately, it only got resolved uh, at the end of the year in 2019 by Boris Johnson bulldozing in, quite mm. literally. He drove a bulldozer <laughs> through a wall saying <laughs> Brexit. And we ended up sort of resolving this by polarization in the end rather than chaos. Yeah. And you give some great historic examples of chaos, too, as in Poland in the late 18th century or Belgium, you know, just a decade ago, basically failing to form a government at all. I think most of us can sort of intuitively understand that the idea of pure democracy is fictional, you know, that if everyone really could have an equal vote, chaos could ensue, which is why we've created all these political structures of representation and and things as a way of managing and, and channeling and and arbitrating that. But you say, for example, that there, there are many traps along the way. The, the problem we seem to have currently in the U.S. is sort of uh, the opposite, but in a way a variation of what you see in the U.K., which you call polarization. So basically, if I understand correctly, this is sort of a problem where in some ways we've reduced our options to a binary, you know, rather than too many options and too many players, we've boiled it down to Democrat, Republican, and it is sort of a winner-take-all scenario. And that's another way that things can just get stuck into, you know, maybe things get done, but in our case, with a great deal of animosity. Yeah, that's right. You you can end up either with a kind of scorched earth outcome, or if the if the opposition still have some levers, you end up with gridlock, right? And you end up with the endemic debt ceiling crises that we yes. see in Congress, right? And I, I had to check your publication date to see, like, how did he know that we were right in the middle of another debt ceiling <laughs> crisis? Exactly. Uh, it doesn't matter how many editions this book goes through, the debt ceiling crisis will always be relevant. Okay, so then let's let's pivot and try to talk about some solutions. One idea I might have is that, well, maybe it's a technical problem and that if we came up with a better voting system, you know, a mm -hmm. ranked choice voting system, yeah. or I think you refer to something called quadratic voting, uh, is there any hope that, that through some mechanical change like that, we might be able to improve our democracy? I mean, I think the good news is we don't all live in complete chaos because, as you, as you say, our politics does have some structure to it, right? So, you know, sometimes it's because our preferences are simple, right? So people who want really high levels of tax probably prefer moderate levels of tax to low levels of tax, right? So we can kind of order what people do. People don't just have kind of random grab bags. But more importantly, political parties order what we do. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in some ways, parties are how we get around chaos. They're what I call chaos cages. Hmm. Now, the downside to that we, we've spoken about already, which is that it, parties can create political polarization, right? So we can sort of get too much order and structure with the parties fighting against one another without enough give and take in the middle. And that's why, in a way, you're veering between chaos and polarization, because they're the, the twin poles of this trade-off, the democracy trap, and you don't want to get too close to either. Mm -hmm. So we can't completely resolve 
what the best democratic system would be. And I think in a way that's good, right? Because we see lots of different electoral systems around the world and it's not mm -hmm. obvious that the American one is bad. In, in some ways, it beats the British system in that the, you guys have many mechanisms of, of what you call horizontal accountability, right? So Congress can stop the presidency from doing things. The judiciary can constrain Congress. Mm -hmm. Of course, the executive can choose parts of the judiciary and, and, and so forth, right? And in the United Kingdom, if you're prime minister, it's what Lord Hailsham called an elective dictatorship. So that that's not necessarily great. But the other thing we could do is try and resolve the polarization side by having electoral systems that basically mean you get more parties. And, and the best way of doing that are things like ranked choice voting or proportional mm -hmm. voting of some kind, which stop you from falling into the trap you get into with our first-past-the-post or plurality elections like you mm -hmm. have uh, you know, in the United States, the Electoral College, and in Britain in our constituencies, because those systems almost guarantee you end up with a two-party system. And with a two-party system, you end up with this back-and-forth binary and animosity. Okay, so we won't rely on any of those sort of technical innovations to save us, but we should experiment with them, uh, try new things, and and just be smart about what we think our politics can accomplish. Yeah. And, and there's one other thing I would say, which is that we can do smaller scale things about learning to talk to one another. And this is particularly mm. difficult with the level of polarization between Democrats and Republicans, you know, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes not so. And I give an example to your audience, which I, I think is one that would be very hard to do in the American context, but is intriguing, which is that the Irish used citizens' assemblies to try and decide when they um, legalized abortion what the restrictions that were still going to be manifest in abortion ought to be. And you know, there is nothing more divisive in American politics than abortion. But that was pretty true in Ireland as well. And nonetheless, getting people into a room to talk to one another about what the trade-offs are, you know, about the health and safety of the mother, about uh, the time limits, uh, about the mechanisms of abortion and so on, did manage to produce a uh, abortion bill that had more public consent uh, mm. than I think would have been in the case before. And some political scientists analyzed the language used by citizens, average Irish citizens, in the assemblies, comparing it to language used in the parliamentary committees in government in Ireland. And they found that the language used by citizens was both more complex and more consensus building than that used by politicians. Well, everyone, in honor of the Independence Day holiday, let's see if we can embrace civilized discourse with our neighbors. It's our birthright, after all, and a critical step in strengthening our democracy. And come back tomorrow when Ben will tell us about another political trap, the equality trap, and how we can get out of it. If you want to hear that sooner, go ahead and download the Next Big Idea app. You can find all of Ben's insights there, along with big ideas from big thinkers of all persuasions. I think you're going to love it. I'm Michael Kovnett, and I'll see you tomorrow.